You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, I think the main lesson is um, how uh, risky um, politics of uh, a very open kind is. So in other words, the Athenians made terrible mistakes, but they also made sure, or as far as they were able to, they didn't make them again. Often there's a debate in the United States as to whether we live in a republic or in a democracy. And you saw this debate flare up particularly after the 2016 election, since Donald Trump was elected through the Electoral College but didn't receive a popular vote win. You saw the back and forth. Uh, Do we live in a republic or a democracy? Always found it to be an interesting question. I think... A speech by James Wilson, who was a member of the Constitutional Convention of 1789. He was a lawyer in Pennsylvania and a delegate from that state. He was also a member of the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention. And that convention's decision in December 1787, as a big state, approving the Constitution was so crucial for that document's success in its ratification. James Wilson makes a speech, he makes several speeches to the convention, but this particular speech may give some insight as to whether the United States is a democracy, a republic, or both. I'll let you listen. Then let us examine, Mr. President, the three species of simple governments which, as I have already mentioned, are the monarchical, the aristocratical, and the democratical. In a monarchy, the supreme power is vested in a single person. In an aristocracy, it's possessed by a body, not formed upon the principle of representation, but enjoying their station by election among themselves, or in light of some personal or territorial qualifications. And lastly, in a democracy, it is inherent in the people, and it is either exercised by themselves or by their representatives. Each of the systems has its advantages and its disadvantages. The advantages of a monarchy are strength, dispatch, unity. Its disadvantages are expense, tyranny, and war. The advantages of an aristocracy are experience and the wisdom resulting from education. Its disadvantages are the dissension among the governors and the oppression of the people. The advantages of a democracy are liberty, caution, industry, fidelity, 
and an opportunity of bringing forward the talents and abilities of the citizens, without regard to birth or fortune. Its disadvantages are dissension and imbecility for the assent of many being required, their exertions will be feeble. To obtain all the advantages and to avoid all the inconveniences of these governments was the leading object of the late convention. Having considered the formation and principles of other systems, it's natural to inquire of what description is the Constitution before us. In its principles, sir, it is purely democratical, varying indeed in form in order to admit all the advantages and to exclude all the disadvantages which are incidental to the known and established constitutions of government. James Wilson would later sit on the Supreme Court of the United States, always a supporter of the Constitution and the federal government. We talk about democracy a lot. We talk about how democracy is under threat sometimes in, in, in various parts of the world. But do we really know what democracy is? It's probably useful to look at the beginnings. We talk and think about Athens. And we probably have this image of what Greek democracy was. Maybe of a bunch of people voting surrounded by pieces of stone or something like that. But do we really know what Greek democracy is? Well, to answer these questions, I've decided to bring in an expert, Dr. Paul Cartledge of the University of Cambridge. He's written a book, Democracy, A Life. It's actually a biography of democracy, if you can believe that. It's a biography of democracy. It goes throughout the years, but focusing a lot on Greece. And we're going to talk to him about democracy then and democracy now. Dr. Paul Cartledge is the inaugural A.G. Leventis Professor of Greek Culture at the University of Cambridge, and he is the author of Democracy, A Life, from Oxford University Press. And he joins me now on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. Dr. Cartledge, thanks very much for coming on. It's a huge pleasure, Bruce. Thanks very much. I've long been an admirer of your work, so I hope you're going to find something useful in mine. Oh, certainly. It's very bold to do a uh, a biography of sorts of democracy. And uh, so uh, that's, that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you. You know, democracy seems strained, might be the best way, so, around the world. So it, it just seems like a timely topic. It does, though that's coincidental. In other words, I've been interested in the subject since the 60s. And things have got, I think, significantly worse of late. But um, that's the way we are. We're, we're having to cope now, aren't we, with what looks like an authoritarian move in the um, eastern part of Europe. And we've got, of course, um, your part of the world. Yeah. Few things um, going on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a few things, as, as they say, going on. I mean, very contradictory, actually, because I'm, as you know, a historian, and therefore I'm interested in how things come to be, not just how things are now. So I'm interested in your founding fathers, as I'm interested in my ancient Greek founding fathers. One of the things that I noticed in, in just uh, looking at the Jefferson Adams letters and like any good grad student, I read the index first, you know, of course, and rather than the actual book. And, you know, a few references to Athens, a couple of references. Th these are two people writing a series of letters over years. So, and Jefferson and Adams maybe mention Athens almost as a symbol. And they seem to be mostly interested in Rome. All their references are, are Rome. And 
Is that the, the, the sense you have of, of our founders, that their view of uh, the Greek history was, was limited? Well, it's not so much limited as um, negative. Mm-hmm. In other words, you have a capital, you have a senate. They're both Roman terms. Mm-hmm. You don't have an Acropolis. You don't have a bully if it were Greek. And there's a very long tradition. They were well educated in the classics. And there's a very long tradition of negativity. In other words, people who were educated, wealthy enough, leisured enough to write about democracy, mm-hmm. typically they weren't actually Democrats in ancient Greek terms. And the reason for that is that um, the masses to them, to the elite, seem to them to be not well educated, not that bright, a little bit stupid, maybe even fickle, all the things that are wrong with mobs. So when it comes to your founders talking amongst themselves, Jefferson, Adams, and uh, going back to Madison and the so-called Federalist Papers, Mm -hmm. Athens for them stood for the wrong kind of popular involvement in politics. In other words, too much involvement, too much power, leading to emotional decision-making rather than rational, to demagoguery, all the sort of stuff that's negative still in our discourse about democracy. So when they found their new state, they're against what they call tyranny, that's monarchy, that's George III, but they're not in favor yet of democracy because that carries connotations of mob rule. So what they go for is a republic, a managed republic, and of course what you and I would call representative democracy, indirect democracy, not direct Let's get into the the Greek side of things. We often talk a lot about Greek democracy as if it's one thing. Your point through this book and the other books that you've written has always been that uh, there's many Greeces, in a sense, and there's many democracies. That's very well put. I mean, it's quite a shock when you think today, okay, Greece, actually, of course, not what the Greeks call themselves. They call themselves Hellenes and Hellas, but there's one unitary state, the state of Greece. Well, in the ancient Greek world, which is how I tend to talk about it, let's say between about 500 and 300 BC, the so-called classical period, there were about a thousand separate Greek communities, pretty much all around the Mediterranean and a large degree around the Black Sea as well. So it would be extraordinary if they all had exactly the same political development, evolution, and ended up with the same form of democracy. And as a matter of fact, probably only about half, absolute maximum, ever had any form of democracy. Athens had the earliest and it had the most developed, but Aristotle, who's the great expert, he's living at the 4th century BC, he writes his work Politics about the Greek city. He says there are actually four sub-varieties of democracy. So democracy itself is not one thing, but it has different variants. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. He was a kind of biologist or a kind of taxonomist, a scholar of 
political institutions, constitutions. So there's a kind of sliding scale. And at the very extreme, as it were, left, you've got the most empowered masses, the demos, the citizen body. At the extreme right of the spectrum, you have very narrowly oligarchic regimes, just a few people running everything. I think it's important to make those distinctions, too, because if we don't, we're subject to the word de- democracy being misused and a lot of people claiming I'm for democracy and picking one of those four and we may not want uh, one uh, or the other. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously our American system has a lot of, of each. Uh, there's a Senate to make sure that the the House of Representatives doesn't get to uh, ownery, and uh, there's numerous uh, protections in the, in, the, in the system. Well, you have what I'd call a presidential um, republic, and so you have a chief executive who's also commander-in-chief of the armed forces, who's not directly responsible, he's not chosen as such, not responsible to the people as such. You have a strange sort of, uh, well, I would call it oligarchic way of choosing your president through the electoral college, which doesn't correspond, doesn't coincide with the popular vote. And, of course, in the last presidential election, the difference, the contradiction was very sharp. So your democracy is different from ours. We have this funny institution of the crown. Uh, our She's a queen at the moment, but it might well be a king, has to sign off on legislation which is actually made and executed through parliament. So what's the relationship there? Rather strange. Then we have another, as you do, you have a judiciary, which is a key element of your constitution to test what the law is, to interpret and so on. Well, we have exactly the same. We have a Supreme Court, we have a High Court, all sorts of things. Well, they're not elected in the way that parliamentary representatives are. And this has given rise quite recently to, I think, appalling anti-democratic ignorance. They don't realize that that is our constitution. You can't suddenly jump up and say, they're not elected. Well, of course they're not. They never have been. And it would be quite an interesting situation if one were to elect um, such people. At any rate, so my point is that... Um, in the ancient world, as you rightly say, there were differences of degree and kind among the democracies that there were. Not all Greek cities were ever democracies of any kind. And in the modern world, too, democracy means something different in Britain from in the States and a fortiori from what happens now in, say, Hungary or Poland. I'm slightly concerned authoritarian direction that things are moving in there. Yeah, there's things I like. Uh, about the British system, to dwell in that a bit. I like the amount of representation in your parliament. I, li- I like the amount of people versus our right. Congress. That a member of parliament could be, the way I would describe it to Americans, almost a neighborhood person. That's how, uh, if you're talking about 60,000, maybe 80,000 people, whereas uh, we're yeah. represented by people even in our house now that are 450,000 to a million um, I, know, I know what you mean. Then they won't be at your kid's birthday party unless you've donated a lot of money, most likely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. I mean, we can discuss later, but the extent to which I think more in your democracy than ours, money can actually buy 
power and indeed therefore influence and therefore actually change the world by having different forms of legislation and so on. I think our system is slightly more impervious to the um, successful deployment of um, great amounts of wealth. Not completely, but you know, to a certain extent. The the part that I don't always like looking from afar, and I, I do follow, I watch PM questions every Every Sunday night for, for the last 25 years, so I've oh. followed British politics. Yes. But the one thing I find a little troubling in the system is just the, the, the frequency of elections that a um, once a party does win parliament, it appears like they can kind of hold on for four or five years or and have a lot of sway over legislation. Yes, and, you uh, have midterms, and we don't have such. You're quite right. Our parliamentary tenures are supposedly four years. Only recently, actually fixed as opposed to, well, you could maybe have an election suddenly after only three years. I mean, that does happen, but uh, you have to have a special procedure now because our parliamentary terms are fixed at four years. So in principle, like your presidential, you know when the next one's going to come. But as you know, we're in the middle of a hung parliament. That is, no one party has an overall majority. And so the government is reliant on a minority party to be the government, we're in a bit of a mess, to be quite honest, and it's all going back to the dreadful <laughs> referendum we had in 2016, but maybe we don't want to go into that in too great detail. Right, I think it is what it is. It's a, it's a, it's a definitely a byproduct of, of democracy, and, and it was an appeal to a democracy uh, that led to the, the Brexit vote, no yes. doubt. I do agree, and I, I think that uh, here we're not immune to it that there are many people particularly on the left who talk about oh it'd be great to have kind of uh something uh that's not first past the post and yes. maybe get into third parties and what i think that they may not see is that could be the bad side where in your country um i don't want to overstate the case but you do have say this really small northern ireland party that is yeah. has a much more control over policy than maybe the democracy would have voted for in a straight-up election. And, and that can happen in coalition. We have a coalition, and we had one before, of course, and it was in the procedures of the coalition when Tories were in government with the Liberal Democrats that Cameron, our then Prime Minister, promised that when the next general election came, one of the issues, one of the things that he, if he were elected, in his manifesto, he would hold a referendum. So it does go back. Um, coalitions tend not to be brilliantly successful in our country, whereas in Germany, in Belgium and so on, they absolutely have to have those because of the way in which they uh, portion out the votes, plus also the way in which the countries are in themselves coalitions of different ethnicities, different religions in a strong mm. way. I mean, that's true of your country and mine as well, but somehow it doesn't play out in the same way. We move around a lot. We, uh, exactly. uh, people live in New Jersey and then in California, and it's not a big deal um, right. as much. Uh, well, we'll go back a bit to the ancient world. We have to talk about Athens. I mean, I guess it was the it's the large city. It's the city that gets the press, so to speak. Uh, we could talk a bit about others. Uh, there's a statue of, of Solon, the lawgiver in our Congress. Uh, he seems to be the symbol of democracy, and we're, we're so proud and of it, and everything stems from that. And democracy is a, 
is such a positive uh, word in our politics. Uh, perhaps we could talk a bit about like Solon and his reforms. And Well, he was regarded in the ancient world a bit like your Jefferson as the founding father of the Athenian democracy. But we historians, we're rather skeptical. We noticed that the word democracy, democratia, was not coined in his lifetime or indeed um, for many, many years after his lifetime, and that we notice also that he's actually a useful symbol. When people have different views on what the democracy should be like, or indeed whether there should still be any sort of democracy, there's quite a debate in Athens later. They fasten on Solon, and sometimes they go even further back to Theseus, a mythical figure, as being really, well, you see, good old days, it was great then, we had Solon, you know, he came along with these laws. Well, we say, actually, no, what he did was make Athens a less aristocratic oligarchy. So, no kings, but ruled by a few, but no longer on the basis of birth, but on the basis of wealth. And the Greeks had a good word for that. It's timocracy. It's rule in accordance with your economic status. And what um, Solon did that was proto-democratic was to institute an appeal court. So if there were decisions by an official who would have been elected only by the wealthy and elected only from the wealthy, if nevertheless he did something which a large number of people felt unhappy about, there was an appeal court. And in that court, which would again be staffed by people of wealth, there was a procedure whereby a vote might be taken, implying one person, one vote. And this does seem to be the absolute um, marker, the, the move forward away from the rule being uh, allocated simply to the very wealthy or the very well-born, to the notion that, well, perhaps people have a certain equality and there's something about doing politics that demands that it's done on the basis of equality. But that's very sort of vestigial. It's only the beginnings. He, he also instituted probably a second council. So not just the aristocratic one, but also a more popular one, again, on the basis of wealth. And then one has to add that actually, though Solon did indeed introduce these reforms, though they were implemented, they didn't last more than a generation because there was then a period quite a long period, of what the Greeks called tyranny. So non-legitimate, illegitimate, extra-parliamentary, if you like, one-man autocratic rule. That lasted for about 35 years. Then there's another bust-up. When they got rid of the tyrant, they, it's a bit like in England in 1649. Um, the parliamentarians uh, executed Charles I, but they couldn't agree on exactly what they wanted to replace it with, what form of a republic. Well, in the same way, they get rid of the tyrant, mm -hmm. uh, but what are we going to have? And that's when upsteps Cleisthenes. Now, for some people, he's the second founder of the democracy, but really I think he and his reform he was, as it were, the Jefferson of um, Athens in the late 6th century. And that's when um, democratic institutions, so that you have um, officials who are elected but responsible, you have a second council that's permanently in session, that's chosen from a representative selection of the whole population of Athens. All sorts of changes that tend towards um, prim primitive sort of democracy.
Uh, and uh, that that interests me a lot. That council of all the citizens and uh, perhaps five hundred. It's called exactly right. The council of five hundred. You put your finger on it. And they. A person can serve on it uh, twice in their lifetime and only once in a decade? Twice only. That's right. It's representative of the population in the sense that um, it's done on the basis of the local, um, what we might call them wards or parishes, in Mm. which citizens are registered. So there are 139 or 140 of them, and each of those has to produce a stated number of councillors who are chosen by lot, by random selection. So, of course, people put their name forward and then they're randomly selected. But some of them were so small, these little, you might call them parishes, wards, even villages, that pretty much everybody would have to serve at least once in order to fulfill the quota. So it's quite a clever system of politicizing people willy-nilly, you know, whether they wanted to be political or not. They would have to go from their local village, and Athens was, as you say, the biggest of the Greek cities. It wasn't very big. It's the same size as Luxembourg today. But um, people would have to go make the effort to go up to the center, to Athens, and to be pretty much on call for pretty much a whole year. And then sometimes some of them would be re-selected for another year. But as you say, maximum of two years' tenure. And so they are a check on the ecclesia or the the assembly. Ecclesia, which is a term meaning people who are called out, ecletoi, there's a trumpeter, so they're called out from wherever they are to assemble. They assemble on a specific um, hill just underneath the Acropolis. It's called the Phoenix Hill. And that happens to begin with probably once a month, whereas later it happens as frequently as nine days. I mean, extraordinarily, they met as a, a citizen assembly every nine days at one point. But initially, just probably once a month, whereas the council is in pretty much permanent session. There are some exceptions for, for example, a major festival, religious festival, then there wouldn't be a session of the council. So the councillors at any one time, they're debating, they're discussing, they're sort of processing what's going to then go on the assembly agenda. (coughs) And then they also, once the assembly's made the decision, it's they who put it into effect. And things like spending on the military, uh, building of ships, very important to Athens. The the Council of 500 is going to have a role in those activities. They are the raisers of taxes. They actually um, appoint um, junior officials to register the payments. Mm -hmm. They do all things. There are various subcommittees, in other words, of the council, as there are subcommittees of your Senate. And um, some specialize in, for example, as you say, building ships, which becomes the major military aspect of um, the Athenian democracy. And on every agenda of the assembly, we learn, I mean, this is probably a little bit later, but you have to have matters to do with the gods, so in other words, religion, matters to do with security, that's to say, defense, And thirdly, you have to have matters of um, taxation and, in general, sort of policing of the citizen body. And that they're stated um, agenda items on every uh, agenda of every assembly meeting. Well, it's interesting. Uh, I know you reference uh, subcommittees of our Senate. 
but but I think a key uh, difference is that uh, in our American Senate, for instance, we have oh Patrick Leahy and Orrin Hatch, the older members of from each party, elected in the nineteen seventies, still serving in the <laughs> in the Senate. And prior to that, uh, Ted Kennedy had died in two thousand nine. He had been there since his brother was president in sixty three. Wow. So. Um, I mean, you know, the, in our Senate, they, they, these people tend to get elected and reelected their long terms. So I, I can't help but crave a little bit some of that Athenian idea of the random selection of people and the temporary status you serve for a year, maybe two. Maybe we were right in, in American, in our American Congress to pick two years just to get people settled a bit in the office. But uh, I, I can't help but crave that a bit, uh, that it just sounds um, so appealing that there would be more random uh, people involved, more recycling of, of people, as it were. Well, it goes with an absolutely crucial absence in the ancient world, namely parties. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there were no parties. Everybody who was politically active was active as himself and didn't campaign or compete with others on platforms, with manifestos. Uh, everything was very individual, very um, risky. There was The parties have two functions, and one is to support those who are right at the top, and the other is to organize the ideas, the feelings, and so on, of the electors, the voters. Well, the, the Athenians managed somehow to do without either of them, either of those ideas being embodied in the notion of a party, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, parties serve some functions. They they brand a candidate, so you, yes. you, you sort of know if you're voting for, in our party, a Democrat or Republican, what they stand for. You sort of know a labor or conservative, to an extent, a liberal Democrat, you, you may know, uh, depending on... Which, which, where, how they woke up and this morning. <laughs> well, all parties, all our parties are compromises, aren't they? I mean, they, they have broad spectrum. So, uh, in themselves, they're an artificial construct. But I would add, there is one kind of election. It's a funny odd reverse election in ancient Athens, which is the closest that um, they got to having elections like we have. And that is when they called an ostracism. So every year, the Athenian assembly was asked, do you want to hold one of these funny reverse elections, an ostracism? So-called because voters turn up with a pot shirt, an ostracon, which has the name on it, either painted or scratched, of the candidate, that is the politician, they want to see exiled for 10 years because they feel that his policies or the way he is conducting his policies is serving not to consolidate the people to make the state stronger and happier and so on, but actually is dividing the population. So we want to have a bit of a clear out get rid of one of the, it's usually two, sometimes three, major politicians who differ very strongly on absolutely crucial policy issues such as foreign policy, for example, should we fight against Sicily or should we not? Should we raise a huge armada or should we not? And um, the one who got the most votes, as long as 6,000 turned up and voted, and that's about a fifth of the total 
uh, electorate, that person would be ostracized. And it's quite striking. Some people ask me, well, is there any one thing that you would like to introduce into modern politics? Yeah, and I sometimes think, hmm, I'd like to see the back of that person for 10 years. <laughs> I, I could name names, but I'd probably better. I think there's a lot of uh, uh, Americans that would feel the same <laughs> in addition. Yeah, I mean, there's certain... Yeah. I think there could be a bad side to that too, though. I wonder if that gets used, that could get used for, for foul purposes, perhaps. Well, interestingly, the one time that it went completely wrong, in other words, it did not solve the issue, but the third, a third party person who was not one of the two major problems got their votes, got the majority, and therefore the ostracism failed in its function. That was actually the last time the Athenians ever used it. So they obviously recognized that it did have its drawbacks. Aristotle, who, as I say, was the greatest sort of theoretician of ancient Greek politics, he um, didn't like it in principle because he thought it was unjust that a politician who'd done nothing criminal could be treated as if he was a criminal because exile was a major penalty. I mean, really unpleasant to send somebody away, bar them from their home, their family, their ancestors, graves, etc., etc., for 10 years, well, that's a long time in an ancient person's life cycle. So he thought it was monstrously unjust, the very principle. But if you were to ask an Athenian, he would say, no, we must have this ultimate sanction. If all other ways of dealing with these guys fail, we've got to have this every year. It's a possibility. I want to take a moment to talk about the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, which enables you to help support me, support this program, and if you like this program, you'll get more of it because there's a number of things. First of all, it includes an archive, and depending on your membership level, that's going to determine how many episodes in the archive you get. It also includes an extra podcast where I talk about different things couple of recent episodes to talk about. One, I go into more detail about the emoluments clause and George Washington and how he applies to it. I talk about Samantha Smith, a young child who in 1983 writes a letter to the, so the leader of the Soviet Union and what happened from there. And I talk about the Lusitania. We've done an episode on Woodrow Wilson. The Lusitania incident and the sinking of that ship was a most important event uh, in Wilson's foreign policy and in what was going to happen in the run-up to America's entry in World War I. We talk about that, what happened, and what happened within the Wilson administration. That's just three examples of multiple content items. There's over 45 content items in the library for the premium podcast alone, not even including archives that you're going to get for the past episodes. So please strongly consider the premium podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics can be as little as $2 a month, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com.
Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Um, a couple other items outside of just the kind of assemblies and senates that you discuss in the book. And by the way, the uh, book is Democracy A Life. I'm talking to Dr. Paul Cartledge. You talk a lot about Athenian jurors yeah. and the power that they had. Well, they didn't have our notion of judges. Um, that's to say somebody who's a legal expert who operates within a framework of precedence and who is a, a specialist, an expert. The Athenians were actually quite suspicious of experts. They, uh, as indeed, of course, <laughs> to some extent, we are too. But, I mean, they believed that uh, experts were needed, but they must be controlled. They must not be allowed to um, just do whatever they think they want to do for their own good, as opposed to the good of the community as a whole. So, uh, in terms of justice, the whole justice system, the Athenians under the democracy took this to a very um, great extent. In other words, they developed a system of um, popular judiciary to an extreme degree, such that every year Athenian citizens were invited to put their name forward, whether they were holding any office or whether they were doing any other function. Do you wish to serve as a uh, juror? You put your name forward. Out of the names put forward, 6,000 were selected every year by random selection, so by the lot, to serve for a year doesn't mean that they actually are in juries, doing jury service every day of the next year, but that they're available on call when courts are sitting. And whenever courts are sitting, there's notice put up, such and such a trial is going to be uh, happening. We need to empanel a jury, let's say it's 501, let's say it's for the trial of Socrates for impiety and a form of treason, high treason. Would you like to serve on that jury? Put your name forward if you're on the panel of 6,000. And then names are drawn, and there's a complicated procedure. They're then allocated to the court. And uh, they are not, as I say, there isn't a judge in the sense of somebody who is the legal expert presiding. Every juror is his own judge. But they operate in a, to our way of thinking, slightly strange mode. There's no discussion after 
what happens is that the prosecution opens the proceedings and his speech is measured in terms of time by a water clock. So he's given so much water and when the water runs out, he has to shut up. But the skillful prosecutor works out. He looks at the flow of the water. He knows when his time's running out and so on. The defendant then responds. He's given the equal amount of time. Then the jury makes its decision. But whereas our juries retire, secret room, not supposed to know what goes on and so on, Thelian juries voted immediately. They had to vote yes or no, in other words, guilty or not guilty, straight away by putting a, um, a token in the respective um, box or barrel. <coughs> then <clears throat> there are certain kinds of cases where after the guilty, not guilty verdict, there is the issue of the sentence. And then again, they would vote and the um, prosecution and defense would argue for what they thought was the appropriate uh, penalty. And um, the jury would then vote again. Uh, yes, we accept the prosecution claim or no, we don't. We go for the defendant's um, claim. So Socrates' trial, which is probably the most famous one, was in two parts. And the second part resulted in him being condemned to death which is what the prosecution wanted, whereas he said, first of all, I should be treated like a hero and given free meals at public town hall for the rest of my life because my whole life has been in your interest. <laughs> the, the jury did not see it that way. Well, and they had, a, and they had uh, the right to see the law the way that they wanted to, in, in my understanding of it, uh, which is attractive in a sense that these juries had an interpretive power. It wasn't, um, you must follow the law dictated this way and has already been interpreted by courts before you and see if it fits in the box. They had a lot more interpretive power. I mean, there is a risk there, of course. Mm -hmm. So once mm -hmm. in our system, you build up a body of um, law, mm. and then you believe that that's sensitive. In other words, it's ironed out all sorts of potential anomalies, or it's not subject to violent fits of um, extreme interpretation and so on. The Athenian jury might um, one day vote one way, and then might, the same people conceivably, might vote mm. exactly the opposite way, because something's happened in between to make them think differently. What they're primarily always motivated by in major public trials is what is best for, in our opinion, what is best for Athens as a community. Not so much what's right and just and equitable for the particular defendant, but what is best for, what is the best outcome for the good as they see it of Athens. So that can change, of course. And as you say, there's no doctrine of precedent. That's absolutely crucial. And it also, I could see a potential negative in that if you were a defendant, you had to be a very good speaker. Uh, Socrates obviously lost that battle, well, uh, famously. He didn't make any effort, really. I mean, mm -hmm. he wasn't a politician in the sense that he went around making speeches. He, he didn't. He, he liked conversation. And famously, his method was question and answer, heuristic in a debate discussion, um, face to face. 
So he wasn't equipped by experience to perform that function, but he also seems to have taken a principled view, and I think probably because he wasn't a Democrat, he actually didn't hugely respect his audience. Um, he almost rubbished the charges against him. In other words, it's not just that um, he was being picked on, but that the charges were, in his view, utterly ridiculous, and therefore he's not going to give them the time of day. Well, the jury didn't share that view. They thought that what he was alleged to have done and stand for was very, very serious. And therefore, he jolly well better answer, you know, give a good explanation and justification. And he doesn't seem to have made any attempt to do that whatsoever. Um, not everybody in Athens got to participate in the democracy or hear cases such as Socrates, right? I mean, there were there were certain groups of people who were kind of in and then of course, there were slaves, but maybe even outside the slaves, there were there were levels of class that determined your level of participation. Well, they were very keen, the Athenians, by making available public pay. In other words, the public funds which came from taxation, from fines, from revenue from their mines, they did redistribute that to enable poor people to act politically who wouldn't otherwise have been able to, for example, in the jury courts. But you mentioned the slaves. By definition, slaves legally are unpersons. They're things. They can't, by definition, therefore be considered equal with citizens. But, uh, as you, I'm sure, are aware, there are also, and this is not peculiar to Athens or the ancient world, it was the case in the world until the late 19th century, all women were deemed to be inferior to all men in terms of their political capacity. So no woman ever had a vote in ancient Athens, even though some very few women but held really senior religious posts as priestesses, but nevertheless they never got a vote in an assembly or served as jurors or as councillors or did anything political. Then there's another group, besides the non-equal um, citizens, that's the women, and besides the slaves, who are of course not citizens, you have this sort of median group. They're free, they're resident, but they're aliens. And they're called metics, which means people who've chosen to live somewhere else than their original home. They've changed their home, but they're permanently resident. They're taxed. They're required to serve in the army and the military, but they have no share in the assembly or in office. So they're in between the two main groups of citizens and slaves, and there were thousands of them. And they came to Athens for economic reasons. Athens was the biggest city, the most diverse city, the most commercially um, developed city. And so they performed functions of bankers and um, tradesmen and uh, merchants, that sort of thing. You uh, are an honorary citizen of Sparta. Did I read that correctly? You did read it correctly, and it's of modern Sparta, of course. <laughs> and um, I have been that since about 2004 or five. And it involves absolutely nothing, but people used to say to me as a joke, so you'll have to turn out in military service and so on. And the Spartans, the ancient Spartans, they weren't Democrats. I mean, they had their own ways of um, doing politics, but an Athenian would have considered them some form of uh, oligarch. 
politics. They didn't have the notion of one citizen, one vote, for example. They were very military, so it's sort of hierarchical, top-down. They had kings, which the Athenians mm-hmm. thought were terrifically old-fashioned. But um, they were the other pole of attraction, really. The two big ancient Greek cities which have had massive influence subsequently. One of them is Sparta, the other one is Athens. And I think that uh, this was an interesting point, if I understood it right, that um, Sparta, although not democratic, did have certain concepts that we would nonetheless find attractive, perhaps, like things like good order. Uh, uh, yes, well, they, they were thought to be a people who ordered their lives and their politics, therefore, in accordance with notions of value, and one of them would be order. But an Athenian would consider that they emphasized that too much. Mm-hmm. For them, discipline, and especially military discipline, was uh, excessive, and there's not enough as it were, private life, not enough freedom to do what you wanted to do as opposed to what you had to do or were required to do by central bodies. Um, there is another in very sensitive issue, which is very often lost sight of. It's actually quite difficult to get hold of. But the Athenians had slaves. These are wholly owned possessions. They're, they're things, and they're mainly, almost exclusively, not Greek at all, not only not Athenian, but they're from Asia, from northern Greece, and what have you. The Spartans had as their own servile population uh, a bunch of slaves in their own territory. They're called helots, and that word mm-hmm. means something like captive. There were many more helots than there were Spartans, and every year Spartans declared war on the helots, and the reason for that was if you were to kill a helot, just as if I were to be in the army and were to kill an Iraqi, that wouldn't count typically as murder. It would be homicide, but not murder. Mm-hmm. In the same way, the Spartans, by declaring all the helots to be enemies, they conducted a permanent war against their own workforce. And it's quite extraordinary. Spartans didn't do any work. Um, they, they fought, but they didn't make anything. They didn't grow anything. Um, they lived the life of soldiers. And checks and balances seem to be a part of the Spartan system. Like, in other words, um, while it may have not been democracy, there may have been some happiness among those people. I don't know if the average Spartan felt say that they were living an oppressed life it's even even absent democracy there seemed to be a lot of checks and balances against say a a tyrant taking over in sparta but i could be wrong on that no no you're completely right i mean it's the romans and the spartans were often compared uh, for good reasons, I think, that both of them had what looks like a system of popular decision-making. They have an assembly which has a vote and so on and so on. But they also had uh, at the very top, um, in the Spartan case, two kings. Two kings. Well, one of the functions of that was that one would be a check on the other. But the kings were regarded as sort of sacred, um, both by birth. They were allegedly descended directly from a god, namely Heracles, and therefore from Zeus, but they were also sacrosanct. You mustn't touch a king. It's rather interesting. In in public, you can't, uh, if you're an ordinary citizen, you can't lay a hand on a king. 
kings had immense charisma and uh, certain powers which were residual. Let's say they were born to uh, occupying the role of king because they were the crown prince of the preceding king. Didn't always work out, of course, in practice, as is always the case with hereditary monarchies. But this is a diarchy, very peculiar. You then have a senate. And whereas um, your Senate, yes, maybe some of your guys last a very long time, the Spartan Senate um, is odd because you had to be at least 60 to be elected to it. And there were no um, uses of the lottery in Sparta. That's one thing that makes them oligarchic, not democratic. There was no popular jury in Sparta. That's another thing that makes them oligarchic, not democratic. But the Senate is probably the oddest thing of all. It's called the Gerousia, which just means the Senate, the old people in Greek. And you had to be 60. You're elected for life, unless, of course, you do something horrendous and commit some criminal offense and what have you. And there were only 28 of them, apart from the two kings, who might be well under 60, but were there ex officio, simply because they were kings. So this is a kind of revising chamber. It mediates between the two kings and the assembly of all Spartans. It has a kind of veto on what goes to the assembly. It's got a pre-deliberative function. So a terrific check on any popular movement coming up from below. Sparta's a top-down society. And because the two kings are ex officio members, their relatives also tended to get elected. You know, their their uncles, their cousins, or whatever. There was always mm. at least one other royal um, on either side uh, of the two kings. So it's fundamentally aristocratic, undemocratic, even anti-democratic. So that's, that's one reason I'm one of those who think Sparta was not, in any useful sense, democratic. Uh, yeah, I think that that looking at uh, looking a bit at our um, modern, it, it's it's awfully hard. And uh, by the way, a reminder that the book is "Democracy: A Life" by Dr. Paul Cartledge of the University of Cambridge. It's published by Oxford University Press. I recommend reading it. There's a lot that that we won't have time to discuss because obviously. There's the middle where we go from the Greeks to today, and and uh, there's so much talk about Romans that I haven't asked much about it. Um, and and then there was an absence of democracy in, in a lot of ways in the Middle Ages, and we're skipping through that. And you had the the Dutch Republic and some experiments, and our American Republic and 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 British experience with um, democracy. I do find it interesting that. No one really directly copied the Athenian democracy as much as they might use Athens as an example. We instituted several traditional checks yes. on on the democratic mob that really, uh, uh, as some commentary, you know, it, it, I find that so much of American political life has already been determined by people long gone, and and there's many people who feel that way that. Uh, you know, our constitutional amendments take an inordinate, an inordinate obstacle to really change. They don't. We changed it 27 times yeah. since the beginning, and there's just you know we have a republic and it's set up the way that it uh, is. Um, even as the country has grown, the size of the chamber you know stopped 
growing in 1911. So we have all of those checks in your system. Um, uh, well, I mean, I, I suppose you start with uh, the in the after the English Civil War. It wasn't like everyone decided to let's leap into democracy. You, you actually went back and to a monarchy for yes, rest, for a while, <laughs> and then the compromise between King, I, the Crown, and Parliament, which is um, referred to, I think quite inaccurately as the glorious revolution of 1688. <laughs> but that is the foundation of representative parliamentary, only later called democracy in the 19th century. And of course, we've then since gone through um, widening the franchise, so more and more people entitled to vote, regardless of whether they own property, for example, that was a major blockage. And then ultimately, women as well as men, and not women only who own a certain amount of property, but any women. So by 1928, finally we get to universal adult suffrage. But the dilution of um, the electorate, in other words, the in, in a way, the enfranchisement of the more and more people, the, the weaker the amount of power that that body actually is able to exercise in terms of direct influence. I mean, the same notion as yours. You got there, if you like, in one go. We took a very long period, a couple of hundred years, to get to where we got to. One thing that I find attractive and interesting about the British system, and just going to the point that there could be many ways to be happy and many forms of democracy that still lead to happiness of the people, and there's different parts from different systems that are that are really good. The one thing about British democracy that I find really good is the theater of it all. I mean, I, I just love watching the prime minister's <laughs> questions. And the fact that your prime minister is called to a box, and, and yes, they... they Every prime minister from Thatcher to May is just very artful at dodging the, the actual question. But still, they have to stand in that box, yeah. and the leader of the opposition gets to question them. Now, obviously, since the reason that they're the leader of the opposition means they don't have enough members, they're not going to get their way. But the theater of that politics being expressed weekly is so attractive to me. <laughs> I really wish we could have Trump or even Obama before him questioned by uh, whoever is the ranking member of the opposition party, you know, each week and called to account uh, rather than relying on the media to do it. And you notice also how our House of Commons is aligned. In other words, the mm -hmm. topography of it is oppositional. Whereas uh, horseshoe is typically the mode that most modern parliaments chose, um, we have this face-to-face um, -face, um, opposition uh, directly, um, binary and um, oppositional. I'm not entirely in favor of that, I don't think. I'd like a little more consensus. But um, I don't know if you've thought about this, but um, it wasn't originally, of course, televised, even after television existed, the notion of having television cameras in the chamber. This was resisted fiercely, partly because people were worried that people would play to the gallery uh, and, as it were, be on the hustings as if it was a, an election uh, the whole time. And I think that's been got over simply by familiarity. But you use the word theatre, and of course the ancients, the ancient Greeks, they invented theatre such as we know it. And for them, going to a play was actually doing politics, because it was um, organised by the state. People were paid, if they were too poor, to be able to go to the theatre. 
theatre, and then there was actually a vote after the performances on who was the best actor, which was the best impresario, which was the best playwright. So they used theatre for the masses. We have, you're quite right, it is theatrical, but it's very much for the elite, just for the parliamentarians. Though I would would have loved to have been alive for uh, Disraeli and Gladstone. Oh, yes. <laughs> Even with... Uh, and and I also think an interesting function of the British democracy is that, okay, you have a monarch. That monarch, though, has an interesting function in modern times, and, and I could be over-exaggerating it as, a, as an American watching across the pond, but uh, the monarch has an interesting function in almost the defender of the democracy. I mean, if a, yeah. if a uh, tyrant was to come, say, out of the House of Commons, it may be very much the queen that in the end would have to step in and say, you can't pass a law that turns us into, say, a uh, non-democratic state. That that goes too far. It's an interesting setup, and I'm always reminded that we really have, we don't have that ultimate authority in America. We're just, in the end, a bunch of people shouting at each other. I mean, there's a Supreme Court, but... There is even there. There's there's limits to that. So we 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 don't have an end from the ruckus, uh, so to speak. Here, <laughs> no, you're quite right. And there's an irony because, of course, the ultimate basis of our parliament is the murder, the execution of a king, uh, Charles the First in 1649. There is though a more recent, much more recent um, instance of that function being played by a monarch, Spain after finally getting rid of Franco and going back to a sort of Republican monarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a moment in Parliament, in the Spanish Parliament, when a would-be um, extreme right-wing person wanting to become obviously a dictator um, made a demonstration in Parliament in order to um, facilitate his becoming, as it were, the next Franco. And Juan Carlos um, then the king, he's now, of course, had to step down, um, he actually intervened, um, performing exactly the role that you've said our queen would be called upon to perform were our parliamentary democracy to be threatened with some kind of internal revolutionary, counter-revolutionary dictatorship. That's quite right. Democracy is under strain. There's direct threats, of course, actual dictators, and they've been around for some time. It's also, there's some positive stories. I think Latin America right now, compared to say the 70s and 80s, is a, is a, um, is a much better place in purely speaking of democrat, on the democratic scale of things, Argentina, Brazil, and, and the like. But in other parts of the world, um, there's perhaps a more subtle threat. And that's that you have places like China, at least in my interpretation of it, Russia to some extent, where they may actually, there might be popular support for a system that's undemocratic, or at least there's disinterest in really spending too much time. And if the economy's good, so to speak, uh, looking at the Chinese example, um, we don't really need your kind of American or British democracy. Uh, so there's kind of this subtle threat. Yeah. And are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic about democracy? Yeah. Well, I'm pessimistic, but um, <laughs> the two examples you gave, they, they have different histories. I mean, I think I, one of the points in my book is that um, where we are now in the States, Britain, France, whatever, 
is the product of centuries of um, evolution, sometimes revolution and so on. Well, the Russians and the Chinese have never, ever had um, parliamentary democracy for more than a very short period of time. In Russia, 1905 to 1917, I think in China's case, never. I stand to be corrected. They are therefore used to authoritarian centralized regimes, whether it's a party or whether it's a dynast, a monarch um, running them. And so what, what you have in Russia is by comparison with Tsarism, relatively um, democratic system, but extremely managed and relatively little in the way of what you and I would call freedom, freedom of speech and so on, absolutely not a value in the so in what's now the ex Soviet Union, the post Soviet state. China likewise. I mean this this notion which um I've I've contributed to podcasts on freedom of speech as an essential democratic value, as it was in Athens, as it is in our democracies. But go to Turkey and now I would say probably Hungary, Poland, certainly Russia and China, that is not an absolute value, let alone one entrenched in law. So um, democracies, well, I, I think there is a trend towards um, illiberal democracy where there is a sort of democracy and authoritarianism where there is no uh, democracy of uh, any useful um, kind. And it's largely due, I think, to in the West and in parts of uh, Central and Eastern Europe, economic uh, necessities uh, and complications of mass immigration from other parts of the world by people who are considered not to be one of us, not to be our sort of people. They're different, they're alien in religion or in some other way. And so everything is under threat in an extreme way that it uh, did not used to be. And there's something we've not talked about yet but has to, mm -hmm. I think, factored in, which is, well, the digital revolution, which once was thought to be empowering and uh, opening up and enabling more and more people to take part on an informed basis in matters that are really important. Well, now we see how it's true of all sorts of criminality, really. It's possible to manipulate social media in particular, which is a very direct form of influence, much more individually direct than going on television and making a party political broadcast. And we see how, you know, people have been, well, frankly, corrupt in um, buying votes or at least trying to influence votes through the use of um, um, illicit, I would say, social media activity. So um, I'm slightly, uh, shall we say, pessimistic, not totally pessimistic, because we have the chance to learn from our past mistakes. And I don't think we're going to just simply slip back to the 20s and 30s again. Yeah, I think um, that the, the point about the digital uh, technology is interesting, that so much of freedom of speech in the ancient world relied on, uh, you, you referred to the juries having to make their vote immediately. Exactly. Everything was you speaking, like freedom of speech is the freedom to speak uh, in person, and to deliver your message with your putting yourself behind your message and right. so much and social media is more like uh, uh, whispering in the dark. Yes. <laughs> well, dark is probably not <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I didn't want to give a spoiler alert for the book, like, you know, democracy dies in the end, but uh, <laughs> we hope that <laughs> we, uh, we, we hope it, you know, remains strong. And what do you think Americans and British people and, and others can learn from Greece and maybe apply it to today that might be helpful? Well, I think the main lesson is um, how risky um, politics of uh, a very open kind is. So in other words, the Athenians made terrible mistakes, but they also made sure, or as far as they were able to, they didn't make them again. So there's a kind of self-correcting mechanism through openness of discussion and deliberation and uh, legislation and so on. The risk that we, I think, have is the gap between those with the power, people actually pulling the levers of power, and ordinary voters like me and I presume yourself, though we try to obviously intervene politically in various um, means by blogs and what have you, what have you. What worries me is that um, we are not, in the way that the Athenians had a transparent system, our, and very direct, and therefore was self-correcting. Ours does not have that possibility because, partly because of scale, um, partly because of complexity of the modern world, technology and so on, we don't have that transparency of political decision-making um, that would enable us to correct for um, errors that um, we're liable to be uh, making. I've been speaking with Dr. Paul Cartledge, the author of Democracy, A Life from Oxford University Press. Dr. Cartledge, thanks so much for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Bruce, you've been an absolutely wonderful interviewer, and um, congratulations on your program, and it's been an honor and a privilege for me to take part in it. Well, I want to thank Dr. Cartledge, Reminder about that premium podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics Premium.com. And thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.